Hi, everyone, and welcome to On Location. This is your host, Jared Cowan, and today we are in South Pasadena, which is a community that has often been used for settings that, you know, have an Anytown America type feel. It's probably most well known for its use as Haddonfield and John Carpenter's Halloween. Actually, just before I got to this location, went by the Halloween house because I always have to do that uh, when I'm in the area. It's almost blasphemous today because I'm actually wearing a Friday the 13th hat, which is kind of funny. Uh, so, it, you know, it's also in the John Hughes pen, Pretty in Pink. Pee Wee Herman's house is just a few minutes from where we're sitting right now uh, from Pee Wee's Big Adventure, I should say. And it has another incredibly, incredibly famous on-screen appearance, which we'll get to in a minute. So aside from loving the exploration of practical filming locations, I've been enthralled with the history of movie studio since I was a kid. It probably all started with Pee Wee Herman walking onto the Warner Brothers lot in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And then later, you know, when I was maybe old enough to see it, though I was probably maybe a little too young, but old enough, I guess, uh, watching Cleavon Little uh, galloping on a horse out of the Warner Brothers lot uh, through those same gates on Barroom Boulevard and Blazing Saddles. And as a journalist, I've had the great pleasure of visiting these places uh, but even as an adult, I'm suddenly transported in my head to times when, as a kid visiting L.A. with my family, we'd go to the studios. Luckily, as a kid who loved movies, we traveled to L.A. a handful of times. And uh, probably from about the time I was in elementary school up through high school, I went to Paramount, went, I went to Warner Brothers. And yes, my favorite place to visit was always Universal Studios. And to me, Disneyland, you know, had nothing on Universal. And I remember the first time I went, I think my aunt told my dad, you know, make sure you sit on the right side of the tram because uh, you'll have the best view of the shark uh, when it comes up. And this was all before the rides were there, although I love the Miami Vice stunt show. But my favorite part was and still is the studio tour. I mean, come on, you know, you have the Psycho House Jaws, King Kong, and of course, Courthouse Square, better known to many as Hill Valley. By my first visit, I was already a huge, huge Back to the Future fan, and seeing Courthouse Square for the first time was, as Marty McFly would say, heavy. It was probably a couple of years after my first visit that we went to Universal again, and as the tram drove by Courthouse Square, there were these huge walls blocking off the set, and to my eight-year-old dismay, I was bummed we couldn't make the turn into Hill Valley, but when the tour guide said that it was blocked because they were filming Back to the Future 2, I think my mind was blown at that point. Uh, any disappointment had suddenly vanished. Not only in about a year's time was I going to get Back to the Future 2, but a year later I was going to get Back to the Future 3, which they were filming at the same time. I mean, that's amazing. 1989, you know, was a great year for blockbusters. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade came out in May. Batman came out in June. But those were out of the way by November, and Back to the Future 2 was all I had on my mind. And just to give you a little context of how much I wanted to see this movie, I know at the time I didn't want to do a chore, or I almost got in trouble for something, and my mom threatened me that if I didn't do what I was told, we weren't going to see Back to the Future 2. So I straightened up right away, uh, and I know that I loved it when I saw it. You had the future, 2015, flying cars, self-lacing Nikes. I mean, it was everything. Uh, and we got a trailer for Part 3 at the end of Part 2. I mean, even better when I revisited Universal probably a year later, not only was I reunited with Courthouse Square, but I got to see it as 2015 uh, in the future mode. It was amazing. Uh, you know, while the filmmakers of the Back to the Future sequels revisited some of the locations from the first film, today we're actually at a location that is specific to part two in South Pasadena, which is kind of 
coincidental because today at the Rose Bowl, they're having the Michael J. Fox Parkinson's uh, Research Run Walk, which, of course, raises awareness for Parkinson's research and raises funds for it. So that's just happening, you know, 10 minutes away. So that's awesome. Uh, we are outside the home of Gertrude Tannen, the loudmouth grandmother of the trilogy's obnoxious and slightly mentally deranged bully Biff Tannen. Now, aside from working uh, in locations on both Back to the Future sequels, my guest has worked on films like Edward Scissorhands, Casino, Twister, two films with eight in the title, 8mm and 8 Mile, True Lies, Transformers, Tropic Thunder, Pearl Harbor, and a few dozen more feature films um, to his credit. I'd like to welcome my guest, Michael Burmeister. How are you? Very good. I'm doing very well today. Thanks for coming out to South Pasadena to uh, Biff's grandmother's house. Now, I'll just start by saying that, you know, I'm not really... uh, a car guy myself, you know, but like many other kids, of course, who grew up on Back to the Future, and I'm sure adults too, uh, the only car I've ever wanted is a DeLorean. What do you remember about being around that time machine, which is arguably the most famous movie car ever? Right. Well, in fact, before I became a location manager, I worked at NBC as a page, and I used to work on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And Johnny Carson had one of the original DeLoreans, and his license plate number was 360-G-U-Y, 360-guy, all-around guy. So that was my first taste of a DeLorean as a tour guy, as a page at NBC. Then later I became a location manager, and I was working on Back to the Future 2. I did not work on Back to the Future 1. Paul Pod was the main manager, and I worked with him on Back to the Future 2 and 3. And by Back to the Future 2, the DeLorean was a thing. So the first time I saw it, I got a kick out of it. Even I thought I'm like a jaded filmmaker, but when I saw that car, it was fantastic. So Back to the Future 2 and 3 were shot at the same time. Yeah. Well, I'm- what happened originally, I was, uh, I was doing a TV show called Matlock as a manager on the show. And I had done the first season, and I was just kind of bored. It was mansion, bar, restaurant, mansion, bar, restaurant, courtroom. And I got kind of got bored. So I went, my buddy of mine, Richard Vane, was a producer at Amblin. And I went to him, I go, Dick, I'm dying here. I got to start doing features. <laughs> he goes, well, my buddy Paul Paz doing Back to Future 2, and he needs some help. <laughs> so I met Paul Pav. He's this bigger-than-life Czechoslovakian guy. He says, darling, we'll hire you. So he hired me on the show. And it was a pretty thick script. And I read it, and basically the script was Back to the Future 2 and 3 as one movie, Back to the Future 2. Wow. It was ambitious. I go, holy cow, how are we going to do all this stuff? Because it's, it's everything from 2 and 3 in one movie, hour and a half movie. So I had quit Matlock. I had just bought a brand new 1989 Ford Probe, which ironically was the car of the future in Back to the Future, in the back lot. <laughs> and... And I, I had I just bought a townhouse, and I was paying a mortgage and a car payment, you know. And I'm on, and so I'm scouting like crazy, looking for locations. And I'm on the show two weeks, and and Paul says comes into the, he, I come into the office and he goes, sweetheart, we're shutting down. <laughs> I go, what? He says they're canceling the movie. It's too expensive. It's over. I go, Paul, I'm dying here. I got a car payment, a house payment. I just quit a TV show that runs for nine months. <laughs> he goes. Sweetheart, don't worry, you'll be fine. <laughs> they laid off everybody except the art department and us. 
We kept scouting, kept scouting. And all of a sudden, like a week or two later, they come back with the edict. We're going to make Back to the Future 2 and 3 back to back. So they basically cut the script in half. And we just started filming. You had the normal Back to the Future. You had the future. You had the Western, the Western town, the, the Monument Valley stuff. It was a massive undertaking. And the studio, they had a real hit with Back to the Future, the original. But especially back then, budgets were a big deal. It was kind of uh, very unusual to do two movies back to back. I want to ask you about Matlock for a second because oh, sure. you mentioned it. So I remember when I was researching something yeah. else, there's an episode, I think it was from 1988. I don't know, were you still working on it at that I time? I might have been, might have been. There's an episode, and I think it's the first time that Andy Griffith is reunited with Don Knotts, uh, oh, yeah, and he yeah, moves yeah, in yeah. next door, and yeah. it's an episode called The Lemon, and he actually buys a DeLorean. Uh, Don Knotts buys a DeLorean, and it was actually shot on Colonial Street at Universal, oh, really? which, is, which is crazy with all those tie-ins, you know, being at that, place yeah, you know yeah, and of yeah. course I, the delorean is the lemon <laughs> well we, in fact matlock we were at universal i worked on the first season i have a feeling that might have been the second season because i don't quite remember the delorean i remember don knotts yeah right but not the delorean i don't think you can forget don knotts <laughs> yeah. if you had the well, he opportunity was, he was great yeah he was, great. he was a sweet sweet man so we're here on bushnell avenue and when we sat down you were like wow this is really a beautiful street i mean yeah. it is you have trees canopying over the street i mean it's quite something that's great you know other than it just being a beautiful street what i love about it and it's using back to the future too is that actually lorraine's and george's houses are just a few doors down from part one but unless you're a super fan of the movies and and their locations yeah uh, you wouldn't necessarily know that the filmmakers for back to the future two came back to bushnell avenue because you'd never see george's and, and lorraine's houses in the sequel and in a weird way, it's kind of this meta kind of thing, you know, and it makes complete sense because, you know, George and Lorraine, sure, they'd live on the same street as Biff. It seems like, you know, they probably all grew up together, you know, uh, George being the nerdy loner. Lorraine is the pretty popular girl. And, you know, Biff's the lug-headed bully. We know that, that the trilogy is so well mapped out. I mean, that first film alone the structure and how it flows is incredible. I mean, it's no wonder it was nominated for Best Screenplay you know, award. Well, so. I, I think people say that the, back to the, the original Back to the Future was the perfect screenplay. Now, I'm wondering if this relation, you know, we're sitting outside Biff's grandma's house on Bushnell Avenue. George and Lorraine live down the street here. Was it part of the thought process to specifically come back to Bushnell Avenue? Was it like a directive? I mean, obviously, the, somebody was familiar with the street, maybe having been here already for the first one. Paul Pav found the house. And this house, he either he found it before I started or, or they had maybe scouted it for the first movie. I'm not really sure. Um, what I love, too, is Lorraine's house, a few doors down, was also Michael J. Fox's house in Teen Wolf. Oh, really? So oh, that's ironic. What I know from the director of Teen Wolf is that, because they filmed, he, they, he did Teen Wolf before he did Back to the Future. And my understanding is that the filmmakers of the first Back to the Future scouted that house while they were filming Teen Wolf. Oh, so interesting. So it was happening like all at the same time. Were you a fan of the first first film? I loved, I mean, because I was, by then I was in locations. See, I loved like, I saw the original Star Wars in Westwood, Back to the Future, and I was connected to it in the sense that my friend Dick 
and Paul were working at Amblin, and and I knew Paul socially a little bit, and it was kind of fun to watch a movie that I loved, and I knew people that kind of worked on it. As a fan of the first one, when you did the second one and you revisited any of the places that were used in the first one, right? I don't know. Is there any sense of awe for you, or is it just this is my well, job? And well, you know, I, well, I mean. I got a kick out of it. I mean, Marty's house was the best because you pull up and there's this little tiny post-war two-bedroom, one-bath house. And then behind it is this huge power line. And when you pull up to it in person, I got a kick. I am a movie fan and I kind of liked doing locations. So for me to go back to the high school in Whittier and, the, the, we ha- and to go back to the Marty's house... And we put the lion's gate up, you know, the, the, the what do you call them? The lion estate signs. The, the, yeah, like the, the walls. Those the walls, walls. yeah. I just, I just got a kick out of it because I loved the first movie. And here I am. I'm getting paid to look at all this stuff and be part of it. Yeah, you're in Hill Valley. I mean, now the first Back to the Future, of course, shot all over the L.A. area. Right. Um, some locations were in L.A. proper. Some were a little further spread out. Right. Um, You know, there's nothing about the locations in Back to the Future that say L.A., and that makes sense because, you know, it's supposed to be kind of a small California town. Do you think if these films were made today, there's a good possibility that they could have been shot somewhere else like Atlanta Um, with everything, you know, shooting with the power of the productions there now? Well, I've done a couple films in Atlanta. I mean, the idea was that Back to the Future was a kind of a generic, cutesy, all-American town and you could probably have shot it in Atlanta, I suspect, because all the all the locations were like nice, normal, all American locations, if you know what I mean. In that respect, until you get into the desert or the western. Town. Right. Over so much time, filmmakers have returned to South Pasadena. Yeah. You know, because you don't have unless you're looking at very specific areas. Like I can see them some down there, but you don't have palm trees all over the place. You don't right. have the banana palm leaves uh, that are yeah. you know. Uh, people associate with Los now, Angeles. Ironically, on this street, these are all these canopied oak trees, right. but yet interspersed are palm trees. Right. But the oaks so overpower the palms that you don't really see them. The palms are oh, pretty high, like yeah. 50 just... feet. In fact, what we did when we filmed here, there is a palm tree in front of Biff's house. We wrapped it with an oak oh. bark, like 10 <laughs> feet up. It was like... That's amazing. It's kind of like foam, like foam, and we wrapped the tree. Because if you had a little walking scene or something, if you pan past it, you see a palm. If you go 10 feet up right. with this fake oak bark. Yeah. And you do it, have a walking scene here. There is a walking it's an, scene it's out an front. Oak tree. You know? Yeah. I didn't even think about that as I pulled yeah. up here. That's the stuff you got to think about with the locations <laughs> exactly. and production design. It's amazing. Got to wrap the trees, uh, boys. Wrap the trees. <laughs> Man. At least as it's listed on IMDb, on part two, you're credited as additional location manager. And then part three, it's location manager. Right. So... What was going on there? Do you remember with well, the actually, credit? Well, actually, on Back to the Future 2, this is a killer. I, Back to the Future 2, they had uh, a screening. So I brought my friend Jackie Tone with me, and I'm all proud. I'm worked on Back to the Future 2, and, and we go to watch the movie, and they roll the credits. My name was not in the credits. Oh. They had forgotten to put my name in it. So the credits roll, and, and Paul Pav is in there. And and they forgot my name, and I was like, oh god. So, 
So I, I think later uh, I put it into IMDb, and I think I sent them the crew list or something. Oh, okay, okay. And, I, and maybe that's how it was in the crew list. But you got your part three credit, though. Yeah, cr- yeah then they, they felt so bad about it. Because we were doing back-to-back, and I go in going, hello. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you started at a time where there might be a couple of people in the department. It was us. You know, it was you. But then as time went on, you know, now you have situations where there's 10 plus oh, people. I'm, so like Back to the Future 2 and 3, it was Paul Pav, location manager, Michael Burmeister, location manager. That was it. What has changed over time that now movies need 10, 15 people in a locations department? When I first started, back then you would show up in the morning, we'll say at the Biltmore, and we're going to be there all day. Uh, and I give the location list to the second AD. I get him started, and I take off. And the AD was in charge of the location or around this street. You just take off and scout and prep and whatever. And over time, we had more responsibilities. Now all of a sudden, we have to be on this set. That means a person. Now we have we're in charge of now getting. We never got portable restrooms back in the day. They used a honey wagon. That was it. Now all of a sudden we have to rent portable restrooms and do a purchase order. And now we have to get it. We never use tents for lunch. You put the tables out in the parking lot. The drivers got a free breakfast. What, here's how it worked. You show up in the morning. We all had to pay a dollar for our burritos. A dollar. Boom. In the thing. And that's the, <laughs> the guys kept that. The boys. That was their right. deal. The drivers didn't have to pay a dollar, but they had to take all the tables and chairs, put them in the parking lot. No tent. No pop-ups have breakfast, have lunch. They take the tables and chairs down, put them back in the truck, and they got a free burrito. So now you need to buy a tent, rent a tent. That's us. Portageon, that's us. All of a sudden, we started doing more and more and more, and, and then permitting got a little more tricky. You had to sign neighbors now all of a sudden. It's just it became more of a complex job. You mentioned Amblin a couple of times, oh, yeah. and as we all know, Back to the Future is an Amblin film produced right. by Steven Spielberg and yeah. you know Frank Marshall, Kathleen Kennedy. Right. So it, when I was looking at your credits, I mean, before Back to the Future, though, it looks like you had already done some Amblin stuff. First of all, you had E.T. very right. early, and then I think I even saw Harry and the Hendersons, which was an Amblin production. I did a little bit of work on that. Um, yeah. So I guess E.T. would be the first. So... Tell me about that, getting in with that, and well, what you did on ET. Well, here, well, here's here's how. It, well, so I I start when I came to California. I said from where from Buffalo, New York. Okay, I graduated from college. I go. I'm going to California because for three reasons. One, I wanted to be in entertainment. Two, I liked Hawaiian shirts, and three, <laughs> I like girls in bikinis. So those are my three reasons to move to California. I was a deep thinker back then. <laughs> So I come out, and I like the Beach Boys. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So I come to California. I got here on April Fool's Day, 1976. I think it was like a Friday. And a friend of mine from grade school, she had an apartment. She let me crash there for a couple days. And I literally went out on a Saturday. I found a single apartment. And then back then, you had just regular phones, old-fashioned phones. And I went to the phone company on Monday, got the phone hooked up. Tuesday, I went to Disneyland. And I said to him, I said, hey, I want to do that Jungle Cruise for a job. <laughs> and they said, uh, too late. We're hired everybody for the summer. But go across the street. There's the Disneyland Hotel. And I walked in. And this guy named Santos Elizondo hired me as a room service waiter. 
And I still, so I've never had a real job since I've been in California. I was a room service waiter at Disneyland. Then I became a tour guide at Universal Studios. Oh, you worked as a tour guide at Universal. Yeah, and I saw I, I saw all those sets, the Back to the Future, t- all that. And then I was a driver for the tour. Then I became a page at NBC. Then I worked for Doc Severinsen, who was the trumpet player on The Tonight Show, as his stage manager. And, th- and that job, I liked it, but it didn't pay any money. There's no real future. So my buddy was doing uh, post work on uh, Indiana Jones. Mm. And they were going to do a movie called Poltergeist. And he was doing that as a PA. And he calls me and goes, hey, Mike, uh, they're doing this show called The Boy's Life. Is this like low budget thing? And, and this other PA, he's lazy and I don't want to do his job. So do you want to, do, you want to be a PA on Boy's Life? I go, sure. So I walked in and I met with a lady by the name of Kathleen Kennedy. And I was the first person she hired on The Boy's Life. Wow. And that turned out to be E.T., so I was a PA, production assistant, and that was a great experience. In fact, if you, if you want to see me in the movie, when Peter Coyote's walking up that round tube into the house, yes. I am paper suit number two. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, i got to go home and watch that. All I mean, you see I, is like this little square. That's crazy. <laughs> oh, man. And then there's also another connection because same production designer who did Suburbicon... Did E.T.? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jim Bissell. Right? Yeah. I went full circle. I worked with Jim on Suburbicon years later as a location manager. And uh, it was kind of fun, you know? And and we both had this connection from the old days. So Back to the Future 2 opens at McFly House in Arlita. It's in the San Fernando Valley. You know, when they were making the first one, nobody knew what it was going to be. Nobody knew the power it would have. Um, but the sequels were made. So the f- sequels were made a few years after the first film. Of course, by that time, like we talked about, Back to the Future had gained a lot of traction. The car was a huge thing. Uh, it was the top grossing movie of 1985. I think it was like over $200 million or something, which is amazing. Was there a lot of curiosity? Do you remember from the neighborhood there in Arlita, when you guys showed back up to do the um, sequel? Not like it is nowadays. Um, there was a little bit of curiosity, but not like nowadays where it's, it's because of the internet and all that. Back then, it was a little different. We didn't call it Back to the Future 2 and 3. We called the movie Paradox. That was the beginning of having a code name because you're making a sequel. But they figured it out. You put up the lions, the the the... the the walls, the sta- state signs, yeah, yeah, they, right. they kind of figure it out. And you're at the same house they filmed Back to the Future, they figure it out. We occasionally people will come by, but not how it would be nowadays. But did the neighborhood, I mean, the, I mean, obviously, the I mean, they they were pretty nonchalant, yeah, they were like, eh, whatever. But I mean, when they when obviously you guys came there, I, I imagine, I mean, they knew it, it was getting yeah, back yeah, to the future. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, you you didn't just show up one day. With the DeLorean, you didn't tell them we're doing this movie called Paradox, and then show up with the DeLorean two days later or whatever. I mean, or whatever. Well, I had to, back then it was just Paul and myself, so I had to knock on all the doors and tell everybody we're filming all night long. We're filming over at the house where they did Back to the Future. <laughs> you know, we're doing this thing called Paradox. Michael J. Fox is in it, but you know, <laughs> they kind of figured it out. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Do you remember though anybody? I mean, again, this is now a huge movie, yeah. and they're figuring out what you're doing. Yeah. Do you remember anybody being like, "I want this amount of money"? Well, there was one situation. The whole block, I literally knocked on every door, so I knew every person there. That was my job, and I had a little list of their names and phone numbers and all that. Between Back to the Future and Back to the Future Two, 
the house directly across the street from Marty's house changed hands. So the new owner, a young couple, they put like different lights on their garage. They have like little uh, lights on either side of the garage door, like on the wall. So my partner, Paul, uh, was talking to us, hey, we want to film the movie. We, we want to change these lights back to what they were five years ago. And the guy, kind of a young, cocky guy, and he goes, well, I want X amount. Of, I forgot what the figure was, but the figure was probably double what we were paying Marty McFly for their house. So Paul goes, uh, we can negotiate a little bit, but... And the guy was, he thought he had us. And uh, so Paul had a really good relationship with Bob Zemeckis. And he went to Bob and said, hey, uh, the house directly across the street, they want more than the house we're filming. And he says, it's just a reverse shot. And Paul says, well, should I pay him? Or he, he goes, nah, you know what? We can get around that. So he kind of shot around this somehow. Well, we never had to f- film his house. But the rest of the neighborhood is pretty fine. The sequel, the first sequel, yeah. not only does it go back to some of the same locations, but it recreates scenes from the first oh, yeah, movie, yeah, well, uh, was, specific yep. things from, you know, maybe some a slightly different vantage point or right. something like that. Do you remember, well, there were the lights you just talked about. Were there any other uh, unexpected obstacles well, due to the passage of well, time? Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Oh, so when we scouted the house... And everything was fine. You know, we scouted the neighborhood, the house. We figured out what we're doing. And it was a nice, big, canopied street. And, of course, every 20 years, the city of L.A. decides to trim trees. And between our tech scout and filming, the city of Los Angeles, in their infinite wisdom, completely hacked up the whole street's trees. They would look like big, naked sticks. In Arlita there. In Arlita. Mm. And we pull up. It's like, What? Looked like a bomb went off. You know how when you really hack away at a tree? Yeah. Because they oh, do yeah. it once every 20 years. So Danny Andrego was our greens guy, and he had to go out and get branches. And he, he had ropes and branches hanging from all, like four or five trees around the house to make it look as if it was a canopied street. And this guy was a magician. He he had ropes. It was kind of primitive, like ropes hanging down and, and branches at weird angles. But when you film it, it looked like the old canopy trees wow. five years earlier. Had you worked on Courthouse Square between, you know, we know you didn't do the first film, but had yeah. you worked on Courthouse Square between the first film and the time you did Back to the Future 2? And was there ever this like, wow, this is... Now this is really Hill Valley. I mean, this well, is... Well, I, when I was a tour guide, I probably went through, between being a tour guide and a driver, I had probably gone through Courthouse Square around 2,000 times on tours. And I don't think I filmed it before Back to the Future on a show that I did, but they changed the Courthouse Square a lot for Back to the Future. And they dug holes, they poured water, they redid the bill. It was a huge change. Yeah, I mean, we see a few versions of Courthouse Square in part two. You know, when we were talking about a place to meet up for this episode, you know, one location you suggested was the Mount Hollywood Tunnel in Griffith Park uh, that leads to the observatory, um, which is in part two. Uh, it's used as Hill Valley's River Road Tunnel, uh, the night of the big storm, you know, after the dance. Uh, it's a great location, but there's just nowhere to park there yeah, to, yeah. To, to meet. Uh, I wanted to bring it up because the tunnel is also the entrance to Toontown from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is Zemeckis also. Right, and right. I'm wondering 
if there's any connection there, you know, it's like somebody knew, yeah, well, we use this for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, that's a good question. Um, actually, I did a little work on on uh, that movie. Oh, you did? Like a, like a day or two, they, we did like a kind of a reshoot of a reshoot. Not the tunnel, but I did a little work on that, too. I was like, you know, back then, you get a call, and you, okay, I need you for three weeks on Roger Rabbit. You got to find something for three days. That was kind of fun. Um, I It's hard to it, Everybody was around, so yeah. I suspect just in conversation. It was a more of a simple time. There aren't that many tunnels in L.A. Right. That one is yeah. very controllable at night, especially. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's also a cool uh, Roger Rabbit reference in Back to the Future 2. You know, when he goes up to the, when Marty goes up to the, um, the blast from the past store where he buys the almanac. Oh, yeah, There's yeah, a yeah. Roger Rabbit doll in the window. Uh, oh, really? Along, I think, with maybe some other Amblin yeah, yeah. stuff well, in yeah. there. You know <laughs> what I mean? What do you call them? Easter eggs, I guess? Yeah, Easter yeah, eggs. Right, had, yeah. A bunch of those were in there. It was well, kind of fun. I think that's why we all love Back to the Future, because yeah. I think, you know, you, you pick up on something new every time you see it, which actually leads me something to, to this house. Yeah. When I was watching it the other day, you know, his, his grandma's got all this kind of junk in her front yard. Yeah. Not like it. I mean, now it's clear. There's nothing there, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But there's a uh, black lawn jockey in her yard. Serious? Yeah. Wow. It's not the version that is considered racially insensitive. Th- there's one. There's a version called Jocko, which okay. is a caricature of like a black boy right, right, right. who's kind of hunched over. But they made this other version, sometimes with white skin, sometimes with black skin. Right. Right. And there is one really? in her front. Long. Really? This is Biv's grandma. Yeah. And right next to it, there's the, you know, no trespassing or you'll be prosecuted sign. Even though we never see his grandmother, right, we, I think right. we have a pretty good idea of who she is just yeah, from these yeah. things on the front lawn, you know. Now, so many of the films you've worked on in your, you know, 35 year career have required major visual effects. Um, you've done all kinds of action, big, big action movies. Have the ways that visual effects oh. changed? Uh, and day. how they're how they're created and produced and achieved has that affected your job as a location manager? Do you have to consider certain things that maybe you didn't have to, or you had to in a certain way in the beginning, but through your career changed? Uh, visual effects or special effects and visual effects during my run changed a lot, and almost like every day. In other words, every film I did back in the day, you you kind of knew stuff. You know, you you, you say, okay, it's going to be like this. Cause that, and most of the effects were practical, and I'd tell people, well, we're doing this, this, and this. Then all of a sudden, as time went on, things became less practical and more, I don't want to say computer-oriented, but more visually-oriented, meaning they would do it in post-production or whatever. And in some respects, um, it's easier in that there was less pyro as time went on. Or if they did a, back in the day, you did a big explosion because you had to. Now they'll do a little explosion and add to it visually later, which kind of makes my job a little bit easier because we used to have, you know, broken windows and car alarms going off and all that stuff. So we also see, aside from Bushnell Avenue and Arlita, we see another housing development in part two, which is where a future Marty lives in 2015. Right, right. Um, and today, at least, it's a gated community. I think at the time, because I looked up the houses, uh, so in the movie, it's Hilldale. That's where Marty yeah, lives. Yeah. Um, I think the houses were brand new. Brand, at least brand the address new. of that house was 1988. That house was built. So it was right brand, when you were filming. What do you think was interesting about those for a 2015? Well, the idea, that what that was, that was where the, uh, the 10 meets the 210, I think. 
freeway. And what it was, it was an old miniature golf course, a huge miniature golf course. They mowed it down, and they built these homes. They're kind of like a mix between a townhouse and a house, meaning they were two stories tall, like a townhouse, we'll say, kind of boxy, stucco, but they were separate. But each house, it was only like three feet between each house. It was a real tight, it was almost like a condo complex, but they were individual homes. And they were kind of modestly priced because it was kind of a weird area back then. It was the middle of nowhere, the junction of two freeways. And the couple that owned Marty's house, we cut a deal. And uh, we were talking to, the, to them. It was a white couple. And the reason I reference that is a lot of the places were not sold. And what happened, a lot of Asian people were kind of coming through, looking at the places, and then kind of like just take off. And apparently the, the agent selling the units would ask some of these people, what's wrong with the house? Like, oh, we love the house, but we don't like the house number. The, the numbers are unlucky. And, and the agent was like a white lady, and she's going, what? And so I think one of these Asian people mentioned in their culture, certain numbers are bad luck, and they will not buy a house with certain numbers in the address. So they went back to the city, and they renumbered every house in the development with lucky numbers. And this happened kind of like, kind of after-ish we were filmed there, because there were still a lot of vacant units, and whew, they're all sold, and it was wow. an open road back then. Yeah, now it's gated. Yeah, because you can't do that. You can't do the Google Street View in that neighborhood. So, so we pulled up. So we pulled up, and it, it, it had just rained. And Paul Poff and myself were sitting in my car, and uh, it was like wintertime, so it's like dark at like five at night. And we had to go and knock on all these doors and talk all these people into a huge amount of night filming. And we had to make their place look terrible. Right, right. These were brand new houses. So I'm sitting there and he goes, (laughs) I go, so Pav, and I'm like Mr. Chipper Young location guy. And Paul's been around the block. He's he's going, we have to tell these people that we're going to make their houses look like terrible. We're going to make them look like like a, a slum. Because he knows what's ahead of us. I go, Pav, this is easy. We'll just go in there. And <laughs> I was like, Polly Sunshine, you know. And he's, and, but we, and we both sat there and we realized we had to go to like 20, 30 homes and talk these people into it. And we started with the main house. And we, I kind of told him, I said, well, we're going to make it look kind of, you know. <laughs> and once we figured out our little routine, everybody was kind of on board and they knew what we were doing. And we made them look brutal. When was the last time you were here on Bushnell Avenue? Boy, well, back to the future, but I, I, I suspect I've come through here. Yeah. But it's been a long time, a long time. So regarding Biff's grandma's house, yeah, where yeah. we're sitting in, in front of, what do you think it is about this house that was chosen for an older woman uh, as opposed to maybe some of the other houses. I think on, I think there. the idea is that this one story, right, and it yeah. looks kind of small. And even though in LA terms this is a very valuable house, right? It, it, in normal all American terms, it's a small, tiny bungalow, one story. And you would think that uh, a, a woman might live there who can afford that house versus a big two-story house or a big green and green type house. So then there's the house two doors down, right? Where we see, you know, Biff walk down the driveway of his grandma's house. He comes out here, right here on the sidewalk, where he yeah. meets up with a group. There's a, a few, I don't know, five, five-year-old, six-year-old kids. Right. And they've lost their kickball. Yeah. Right. And Biff picks it up. He's walking with it. The right. kids are begging him, Biff, give us our ball back. Give yeah. us our ball back. Right. Um, 
you know, and he does, you know, look, Biff does a lot of evil stuff through these movies. But I think one of the, <laughs> the, the most evil things he does, honestly, is he takes this ball and he yeah. throws it up into the balcony of this house, two doors yeah, down, and yeah. says, you want your ball? Go get it. Yeah. And kind of laughs at them. Yeah. And they're just standing there. So do you know how this happened? Was well, it written that, that, that way? It was what? kind of improv in the sense that it was not written that that was the house they're going to throw. I think the, the ball thing kind of happened like organically as they were filming the scene. It was, he was just going to throw it away. And I think they came up with the idea of the porch because they saw it two doors down. It's the little low rise porch. So they said to me, Hey, we need to throw a ball up there. So I had a knock on their door. Hi, we're doing this movie called Paradox next door. And <laughs> Paradox. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a guy named uh, Marty McFly, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> Doing my best to try to hide what we're doing, right. and I offered him a couple bucks, not a lot of money, because and I said, "Hey, we want to throw a ball. We got to have a prop guy upstairs inside your bedroom, and he's gonna keep throwing the ball back down." And you know, we cut a little deal on the spot, and they said, "Sure," and they signed the thing, mm. and it was kind of a just, "Oh, by the way, we need this now." So I got wow. What's funny about what you said about the prop guy throwing yeah. the ball back down and it yeah. would go back and forth is that right. so back in uh, 2015, yeah. there was a big 30th anniversary celebration in Los Angeles called We're Going Back. And people came from all over the world oh, to wow. this thing. And it was like four or five days at all different places around L.A., different activities, all kinds of things. One of the days was a locations tour. And I photographed this event. This is why I know about it. And they went to all the places around L.A. from at least the first movie. But this also being in the second movie, uh, they, they pulled up here with like three coach buses. Now imagine wow. this. This is this neighborhood. Three huge coach buses pulled up here along the sidewalk. Yeah. And I don't know how many people, 150 people, I don't know, plowed out onto the street. People laid down in the street here because they wanted to take a picture like Marty, you know, after he got hit by the car. Oh, right, you know, right. Like that. Uh, you know, there's a uh, one of the things that they did here was that the people who own that house with the balcony, they put a kickball down front and they sat up there in the balcony, the homeowners and some of the fans, they lined up out on the sidewalk to take a turn throwing the ball really into that the balcony. So sweet. That's how much this movie, these movies have meant to people. So they right. pick it up and they'd say, go get it and throw the ball back up, and the owner would throw the ball back down for the next person to, to, to throw it up there. That's what I like about South Pasadena. It's, it's like a nice Mayberry-type place. Isn't that, that's, a, that's a great story. I it's, love it. it. It was incredible. It really yeah. was amazing. And well, when we filmed here, I tell you, when we filmed here, I had to knock on a lot of doors and tell people we're filming, and everybody here was super really nice, just friendly and nice and and they they had done the first you know right thing, so they kind of knew the drill yeah but they were fine never had a problem here did you film actually back here because there's the garage scene or was that we, we filmed it? we filmed the garage scene behind it in the garage yeah 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 oh wow so oh, you yeah. did film in the garage the there. Whole thing. i didn't know Look if it was because the garages you make the it's right like an turn. l shape yeah, yeah it's, yeah, like it's a l. weird garage they love that because it's different yeah. You come down the driveway, and you make a hard right turn, and it's like, the, I think it was like barn doors that open yeah. up or something, yeah. Yeah. and the, there's that old hot rod car right? Yeah, just fit in there. It, so it's, it's a perfect location. Because it, awesome. it's different, the same but different. I'm glad to know you actually filmed in the garage, because you know, a lot we of did. times, of course, like we know that yeah. even in the first film, Doc Brown's garage, the interior oh, yeah, was yeah. a set on a yeah, stage, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. so I'm glad you, you to find that. That was actually the, 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 the gift store for the Gamble House. Right, right, right. Yeah, That's yeah. right. We were actually on the second movie, we were going to film the Gamble House inside. Because I know on the first one, they weren't allowed to film inside. Right. Uh, because, of course, they're so concerned about 
potential damage that just inherently comes with oh, a, yeah, a film. Yeah. It's not like anybody's doing anything on purpose. It's right. just that's the nature of the business, right? And then I know they filmed the interior at another green and greenhouse in Pasadena. Uh, oh, interesting. Same, same, same architect. Right. It's probably about. Was it the Blacker? Black the Blacker. Blacker house? It was the Blacker house. Yeah, they, yeah, so they yeah. filmed the oh. interior there. Yeah. The interior shows up again in part three. My understanding is, is that at that point, especially Back to the Future being what Back to the Future is, that the house actually said, yeah, you know what? You could film in here. But I was on the scout. So what happened is we were doing like a either a director scout or a tech scout. I forgot which. So the Gamble people is owned by USC at the time. Yeah. And we had this whole idea of filming the outside. We are going to do that big computerized time shift shot. So that was a kind of a done deal. Outside at night, no right. big deal. And then we were going to film inside and they were going to kind of let us do it. So we showed up with all the big boys and big girls and it must have been a tech scout because we were talking about the stuff we were going to do. And then the, the people from USC said, well, you, you can't do this and you can't do that. And okay, okay. Then we're doing more. So, well, you can't do this, you can't do that. And then we all kind of realized there's no way we can really film here realistically without lying to these people outright right. and just bulldozing yeah. our way through. Luckily, Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis are super sweet guys. And we and we all kind of did a little confab, and we said, uh, I think they built it on stage. They did, yeah, yeah. So they recreated the interior of the Blacker House on, on, stage. on stage. Yeah, listen, I love green and green homes. I would never buy one because I'd be bumping my head when you walk room to room. <laughs> I mean, I, literally, right. there's like three inches between my head and the main beam in any room that you went into. Even though it's a nice big house, it's kind of a tight fit mm. if you're a normal human over six foot tall. <laughs> <laughs> right. So and, they, they kind of realize you know, that. And, and if I remember, I feel like Christopher Lloyd's a tall, a t- he's, tall yeah, guy he's, too. He's I, ballpark is six yeah, feet ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was Back to the Future the only time? Well, you did a little scouting. You said a, a little bit of scouting with on Roger Rabbit, but was it the only time really you worked with Robert Zemeckis? Yeah, that's the only time I worked with him on Back to the Future two and three. Can you tell me what he was like upon scouting locations? What, 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 what does he like, you know, the process? Do you remember? Of- he, back then, all I remember is that he was a very, to use a, a modern term, he was a very chill guy back then, mm-hmm. meaning he was very affable, friendly, nice, did not wear any stress on his sleeve, if you know what I mean. He, he was real casual. He talked about stuff. He did not seem stressed out. He seemed supremely confident, and he could go with the punches, being like Paul said, hey, you can't film the reverse over here. And he, oh, we can work that out. He was great to work with. I want to talk about a couple of other directors you've had the opportunity to work with. Tim Burton. Oh, yeah, uh, and, love him. And Martin Scorsese, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So can you tell me about each one's approaches to locations? Tim Burton... I loved working with him on Edward Scissorhands. Which you shot him in Florida. In Florida, Florida right. Lutz, Florida. Yeah. And uh, in fact, that whole big deal, the, the Edward Scissorhands house is yeah, on the market. that's a big thing, yeah. It was, it's like 50 homes. It's called Tinsmith Circle. There were like 50 homes. See, this is back in the old days. We literally went in, ripped out every tree, every bush. Well, this was a brand new development. They were still selling homes. And the trees were like one inch around. Right. The bushes were like a foot high. I mean... There's all kinds of cheap stuff. Right. Like the, the smallest grade of stuff you could get. And we made, and this is all old-fashioned filmmaking. We made each home. We covered in fake siding. We made the windows smaller. We 
put vacuum form on all the garage doors, 50 homes. You made the windows smaller? We made, because these were like kind of modern houses with big windows. So we went in and made these frames that we put up that made the windows look smaller. Wow. And we painted them corn yellow, right. that weird blue, that weird pink. Tim Burton, during the prep and everything, he was great to work with in terms of talking to him and accessible and all that. And then the minute everything was secured, location-wise, then I just like stepped back, and then he was in director mode. And, he, and every good director I've worked with, Spielberg, Scorsese, the one common trait they all have is like this huge tunnel vision, meaning when they're making a movie, they're looking down a, uh, like a telescope of what they're doing, and everything else doesn't seem to matter. And I, and I think that's admirable because I don't have that kind of ability. They're very yeah. focused on what they're doing. You just let them do their thing. Bob Zemeckis is kind of a little bit of a rock on tour, and he's easy breezy talking to him. He can talk to the prop guy or whatever. He's just Tim Burton is pretty intense, meaning he's more of a shy type person. I'm he's, wondering how that translates. How does that translate though to communicating about where you're going to sh- shoot something? Hmm. Interesting. Um. I. I thought he was one of my favorite directors to work mm. with in terms of, I, I guess I knew what he wanted. He would motivate me to really work hard to find stuff to make him happy. The, the, the one thing I love, I found that one shopping center. Oh, yeah, Southgate. I think it's oh, South. That, when I found that, that, I go, this is in the movie. Yeah. It's just the design of it. And then we were, Scott, I was with uh, the, the designer and... Uh, Bo Welch, right? Bo is Welch, it, yeah. yeah. And we were looking... You know how the castle's on a hill? Right, yeah. And the, you, you pan up the side of the thing? So we're in Florida, which is flat as a pancake. <laughs> and we have to find like a mountain or something. And and Florida's flat. Right. So yeah. I'm with Bo Welsh, and we, there's this one gentleman who had this big orange orchard that froze, so all the trees were dead. And we were driving around looking for stuff, and we said to him... Uh, Hey, we'll say Mr. Smith. I forgot his name. So, Mr. Smith, we're looking for a, a mountain. You know, we can do the side of a mountain. He's laughed. Ha, ha, ha. We're in Florida. You <laughs> Hollywood people don't know what you, you know. And I said, well, we need like a hill. You go up the side of the hill and you got the, the castles on top. He goes, well, there's nothing like that for 100 miles. Uh, but I do got a sinkhole. I go, what, what, what? Bo Welsh and myself, we both look at each other. What? Oh, Take yeah, us there. Take us there. And we're in this weird dead tree field, driving, driving, driving. Pull up to this huge hole in the ground, like like a sinkhole or something, just a huge, I don't know, 100 feet across, kind of roundish hole. It goes down like 30 foot. And all the vines and stuff had grown over the side, down it, and Bo goes, we're going to build a set here. So we talked to Mr. Smith, and he, you know, money, why not? Right. We built the set on the side of this sinkhole, so when you pan up, from the bottom, all the vines and stuff were wow. there. And we pan up to the, it was only the front facade of it. Right. And the rest was other bits and pieces. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's, so I just needed and, to ask you about it. Yeah. And I mean, I know it's it's a whole other episode, but I need to just ask you about Casino. Oh, um, oh, wow. And, you know, because it's funny, there's a reference in, in the movie Swingers, right? Yeah. And they say... Yeah, my man my, my Martin Scorsese, I can't believe it went into an actual casino and like filmed, like you filming in a real casino that you were, you well, were it's, at. It's, I mean, well, here's it's, what happened. We were at the Riviera Hotel on yeah. the Strip. And the Riviera was kind of like on the lesser end of the big casinos, you know. And they, so they, 
when we first came in, Casino, Martin Scorsese, he had just done Goodfellas. So, so we're filming. They say, okay, you got to come in at midnight and you got to be gone by like five in the morning. And we're going, well, we do 12 hour days. Well, that's how it is. So we cut the best that we could cut. We come in. And after like the second day, they go, hey, you know what? If you want to come in at like at nine and you can leave like at seven, okay. And then the next day, hey, come in uh, whenever you want and leave whenever you want. <laughs> so I went to the lady, to her office. I go, what's going on? She goes, we're making more money with your crew than if we had it open to the public. I go, what do you mean? <laughs> she says, as every night they check the machines, what had happened? Our crew was gambling like crazy in between tanks. <laughs> So I so I go, what? There's no way these guys are cheap. So that that night, I am on the set, rolling, action. Okay, we're going to kill Benny and Baba cut. And all of a sudden, there's a sound guy dropping money in a slot machine. There's the grip walking up to a slot machine, putting money in. These guys were gambling all night long. So they were making money on us. Say, <laughs> so come in when you want, leave when you want, we don't care. Can you, when you're scouting with Martin Scorsese, I yeah. mean... Can you see the wheels like working? He, now, when Martin Scorsese is a very intense guy. He's very intense. And he mainly collaborates with just a small group of people. And my relationship with him was more formal mm-hmm. in the sense of, uh, hey, Marty, let's go out for a drink. Not happening. Right. So right. I mainly went through the designer. At that point of his career, he doesn't want to scout. He doesn't want to look at locations. Mm. He just wants it to magically happen. And... The big secret with him was if he had a great lunch, you were going to have a great scouting day. So my main deal was finding great restaurants. <laughs> and if he had a good meal, he was happy as a clam and would buy locations left and right. Isn't that weird? Yeah, I've never heard anything like that before. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks so much for being here with me today, Michael. Well, I appreciate well, it. My pleasure. I'm glad, I'm, uh, glad you allowed me to bend your ear. Of course. No, I mean, you know, we had talked about uh, a few potential movies, too, to cover. Uh, and one of them that we had talked about was National Treasure. And oh, yeah. Maybe oh. doing it outside the replica of Independence Hall down at Knott's Berry Farm, which is a yeah. really unique spot. Um, actually, I just want to We, we ma- filmed it. We did film that. Yeah. No, it's, it's awesome. I mean, yeah. one, one story I like about the replica down there is yeah. that... Uh, Peter Hunt, who did the film version of 1776, the musical, right. uh, he scouted the real Independence Hall in Philadelphia, where I'm from, uh, and wanted to see about shooting it there. But they have these, you know, like metal railings in the rooms that keep pe- the tourists away from the, oh, in, like the tables and chairs. Not, not very far. In the in the real in oh, the, the real one, yeah, in yeah. The real we one. filmed both of them. Yeah, and I mean, he told me that the Park Service would not remove them. Right. So he said, well, we can't film. We can't film in here. Yeah. So what they did was is they took the plans that Knott's Berry made for the replica because obviously that work had already been done. Yeah. And they built their own Independence Hall on the Warner Brothers Ranch. Oh, really? Uh, that, right. At the time, the Columbia Ranch. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then they filmed the interior in a stage. But yeah. I love that they took the plans from Knott's Berry really? Farm uh, to they're, do that. They're similar but different because we filmed it both. Uh, they are similar, but if you put them side by side, they look a lot different. What did you do at Knott's Berry Farm? I don't think we filmed the inside. I think we filmed the outside. I don't think the inside doesn't look anything like. No, they, they Hall. have a gift shop in yeah, there. It's, 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 like, it's totally. I think we just filmed the outside, but the bricks a different color. The clock's a whole different clock. Mm. It's a little bit of a different shape. It's kind of similar but different. It, now I have a great story yeah. about the Liberty Bell. When we were filming uh, National Treasure, 
in the old Bell House was like a 50s aluminum and glass structure, right. kind of in the middle of nowhere, like on a lawn. Yeah. And that's where the Liberty Bell was. They were going to move it into a brand new building that looked closer to the style of Independence Hall. We were there during that time. So what they were, we were the only movie company ever to film in the new building because the mm. bell was not in there yet. And once the bell went in, no more filming inside. So we were the, the first and last movie to film in that building. We made our own fake Liberty Bell out of sty, you know, styrofoam foam and plaster and had the crack. It looked just like the Liberty Bell, weighed like 50 pounds. And the cradle is there. And they were gonna, after we were gone, like maybe three, three, month, three weeks later, they were going to move the bell physically an inch, an hour, or whatever it was, from this aluminum building into the brand new building. So <clears throat> we got there. When we're filming Independence Hall, the front, the back, you know, nothing inside, but outside, front, back, whatever. And they were going to let us film in this building. So the prop guys, the night before, they put our fake Liberty Bell in the cradle for the filming next morning because we're going to start at like a seven. Channel 7 News or some local news station happened to be going by. They saw the bell in the building. They freak out. They moved the Liberty Bell and didn't tell anybody. <laughs> Breaking news, 11 o'clock at night. Liberty Bell was moved. They didn't tell anybody. <laughs> this is a national tragedy. Why did they do that? That's crazy. <laughs> so then all of a sudden, they called the, 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 the set deck guys at 2 in the morning. You got to move the bell right now. Oh, they my had to God. go down, and they, and then there's news crews, and there's two guys lifting up a styrofoam bell, walking out the door with it. <laughs> wow! So, yeah, it's crazy. It's just movies are just things happen that are weird. <laughs> well, uh, so it's you know pretty easy to visit Bushnell Avenue to anybody who's uh, listening hasn't been here yet or wants to come back. Uh, but I always do like to say though that when you're visiting a street like this, you know, please don't bother the owners. Uh, be respectful that these are private residences. Uh, it seems like common sense, but you know, you'd know you be surprised at some of the things that fans have done, uh, especially at locations like the McFly House in Arlita. Uh, it's been pretty intense at times uh, over there. But that aside, make sure to follow us on our social media. All the info is on our website, onlocationpodcast.com. Thanks again, Michael. I my, really appreciate my it. My pleasure, my pleasure. Uh, and thank you all for joining us on Location. We'll see you next time.